Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. The stress, the anticipation. Hopefully it works. You never do know. Hello. Hello. Hi. Come on in. Welcome. Well, let's start super basic. Can you describe for me where we are right now? This is Deborah, and we are currently in our shared home at 483. Should I say the address? Is that weird? Yeah, okay. I mean, <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Maybe not. Stop. Strike that. <laughs> what are some common misconceptions about your home life that you find yourself having to explain to people? We're not swingers. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people, when we say, like, oh, yeah, we live with another couple, they're like, oh, like they live in the basement. <laughs> No one's banished to the basement. And then there's like a whole slew of questions about, you know, how does that work? Hi, I'm Julie Beck, a senior editor at The Atlantic. And I'm Becca Rashid, producer of the How To series. This is How to Talk to People. We'll do socks, it'll be so cozy. <laughs> it's so nice to meet I you. I know. So Julie and Becca. Yeah, yes. Becca. Deborah Tepley, Luke Jackson, and Bethany and TJ Fleming kindly invited us into their home on a Monday afternoon. Uh, I don't know nice if you've talked to you yet. No. I have not talked to you yet. So Deborah, nice sir. Nice and this is my husband Luke, who is making prep, like the most opportune time. Anyway, <laughs> do you want me to hit and grab your coats too? I first reported on their shared living setup back in 2019, in an article called "The Case for Buying a House with Friends." But this was the first time we'd met in person. I'll just leave these mic stands right here. Yeah. When Julie and I walked into their house, I felt a sort of ease and playfulness in their shared living setup. Their decor was simple and airy with cream walls and dark accents and two light gray couches where we recorded for the next few hours. It was really cozy and honestly amazingly clean considering two young kids lived there. One named Mary Haley and the other named Pax. <laughs> Julie complimented us on how clean our room was. <laughs> how clean? Did she go into our room? Did you ever get into our sweep? But as down to earth as they are, their home life is actually kind of quietly radical. <laughs> that's that's really Deborah's room. If you'd like, it's, really to it's all well and good to live with friends when you're young, but the concept of settling down can be a strong motivator in adulthood. And single-family homes are called that name for a reason, because the expectation is a single family will live in them, as limiting as that may be. So this all started a few years ago at a New Year's brunch. The four friends who had met at church, they were enjoying some champagne, having some laughs, and then kind of out of nowhere, Luke proposed that they should all buy a house together. And all four of them were down. They were excited to try a more communal way of living. We are currently in our shared home, which is in Petworth in the northwest quadrant of Washington, D.C. And this is Luke. We are in our living room, which is great. 
<laughs> and this is TJ, and I would just add that it's a bright, sunny day outside, and we can see many of the plants we've planted. I don't have anything to add. Okay, great. <laughs> so after many logistical conversations and plenty of financial spreadsheets, they now have a group mortgage and split the costs of their home 50-50 between the two couples. While visiting with these families, I found myself wondering whether how we define what makes a house a home may be what limits us. I feel like our culture can pressure adults to orient family life exclusively around a romantic partner and children, but it's not always immediately clear to me how to build community in a different way and what that looks like. Yeah, I think that's always, you know, oh, so like you're renting together or, and I'm like, no, 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 we bought a house with other people. Like people assume that we regret it. Mm. (laughs) I think people are very curious about the logistics of the arrangement. They're curious about the kids and how that works. Before offering that information to someone, I do think about it. Like, do I want to have this conversation? Because it's going to raise a lot of questions. And so that is something I actually do consider before sharing about our shared living situation. How much energy do you have to explain yourself today? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it's just that our sort of American ideal of one family, one home, like my home is my castle vibes is so strong that they're like, they must be in the basement. They couldn't possibly be upstairs. That's what I think. Yeah. Is that people think about what their life at home looks like and they assume that ours must be like some recognizable version of that. Mm. Yeah. You know, the message of, like, the American dream of, like, buying your own house and, like, the National Association of Realtors has been really successful (laughs) in uh, Mm. making sure everyone believes that's for them. Yeah, we we still get most of those benefits. It's just we kind of, we share it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that is a difference. Either renting together one household, renting to another, is that there's not the same sense of shared ownership. There's also, I think, maybe a power differential if one household owns a house and one is renting. But we're all in it, you know? So if something breaks or if something needs to be repaired, we're all invested. We all really care about the outcome. And I think that actually helps us to avoid conflict Mm -hmm. because we're all so invested in this property and we love this house. And whose idea was it first to buy a house together? I had been pitching Luke on living in community for a couple of years. I grew up in a big family and I really love living with other people. I loved living with roommates. And so I kept sending him different articles or podcasts about (laughs) different people who were in group house situations. And Luke had never had a roommate other than a family member (laughs) Mm. before he married me. And so he said, absolutely not. And then one day he came home after listening to a podcast or a sermon that I had sent to him and said, I think I might be open to this. Um, That being said, no one was more surprised than me when Luke popped the question at New Year's brunch to TJ and Bethany. So you were both married at the time of the New Year's brunch. Yeah. And did you feel any pressure as married couples for your home life to look a certain way? I think culturally, I think you just assume you get married, you buy a home, you know, have a family and live like an independent nuclear kind of family unit. Mm -hmm. And so I think like that had always been my assumption of like what our married life would look like. But as Deborah and I were sort of talking about buying a home and what might that look like, and and this was definitely not one of the default options. (laughs) What would people say when you told them that you were thinking of doing this? Like what kind of pushback would you get? When we talked about it with other people, 
Everyone thought it was a bad idea, <laughs> including our real estate agent who actually sat down with us <laughs> after we pitched the idea and said, you shouldn't do this. This is a bad idea. <laughs> and you know, his rationale was it's hard enough for two people to agree on a house that they want to buy together. I can't even imagine working with four people to find the perfect house, but we actually did find it pretty quickly. I think most people were worried about the worst case scenarios. What if it doesn't work? You're all on the mortgage. Um, what happens you know, when someone has kids? If it doesn't work, how are you guys going to be able to split amicably? Mm. I got a lot of questions about what does discipline look like? And like, do they even like kids? What if they don't like your mm. kids? Those are things that I was like nervous about, but I feel like, you know, it's Luke and Deborah. They're going to love our kids. And if I am going to like parent for the first time in front of anyone, like I would want it to be Luke and Deborah, you know? What was it that you wanted from your home life that wouldn't be met by the traditional single-family home arrangement? And what did you hope that this would provide instead? You know, all four of us have full-time jobs. And so when you're living in community, like, we split groceries. We divide up, like, who's cooking and when. And, you know, there's a lot of talk out there about you know, the domestic labor falls to one partner in a relationship. And so we divide that among four people. And neither of us on our own would have purchased this house, like financially speaking. Like we yeah. got to buy a larger property in a neighborhood that we were more excited about living in. So, yeah, I think I maybe approach this at least practically <laughs> of, of any of us. So I, um, after being married to Deborah for, you know, three or four years, when we started this process, I had kind of become aware of how like living even just with a spouse is challenging, but encouraged me to grow, to be gentler, to be kinder, to be less self-centered. And so I was sort of thinking like, wow, if just like living with just Deborah has done that, imagine like adding more people to the mix I don't know if that's panned out quite, <laughs> but the, <laughs> oh, no. uh, the way that I thought we it doubled would. Doubled in size. Doubled, tripled in size. But, uh, Luke, you've become gentler and softer. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. That's, that's, that's reassuring to hear. Um, so I actually think it makes us better people and encourages us to grow less self-centered to live in community like this. I would say, I think that people often assume that we made this decision for financial reasons. And I think it was more of a missional kind of uh, the desire to live in community and to live with TJ and Bethany. And I, I thought I would be a bigger person. Like you Im imagine I'll be like really altruistic. And, <laughs> and I think a lot of times I'm not, and I really have appreciated their grace and forgiveness towards me when I'm not yeah. a big person or when I don't, when I'm actually like, my behavior is very mm -hmm. poor. And so there's a lot of opportunities for grace and forgiveness. And I've been the recipient of that time and time again. Yeah, I also just think it's a lot of fun. I really feel mm. like we're not communicating how much fun we have together. Someone's always around to like talk to or hang out with. You know, Julie, I'm at the age where many of my friends have serious romantic partners and a lot of them even have kids. So the time for casual hangouts is understandably limited. And if we schedule something, we can make it work. But there has been a noticeable shift in the ease of just meeting up and hanging out spontaneously. 
Yeah, that is something that I worry about a little bit being in a long-term relationship myself and also having just been through a pandemic where we like mostly only hung out with each other for a few years. Mm. I don't want us to be super insular in our relationship. And that does happen. Like married people are a lot less likely than single people to hang out with their friends and neighbors. And research shows that holds true across race, age, and socioeconomic status. So even though I don't think we're going to necessarily invite another couple to move in with us right now, I am trying to be more deliberate about spending more time with my friends regularly. Because as much as we love each other, like I don't want our love for each other to pull us away from our friendships. And culturally, sometimes it feels like it's not even very adult to want to live with your friends forever. So Mm. although it's my ideal scenario to have a huge... L-shaped IKEA sectional couch where my partner, (laughs) along with my 10 friends, can sit together. It doesn't always feel the most realistic when it comes to a long-term living situation Mm. where I can actually live with those sort of chosen family members of mine and make a home with them. I mean, especially once you reach certain milestones, like if you do choose to get married or if you do choose to have kids, Mm. the expectation just kind of gets even stronger that you're going to live with just your nuclear family, like just your partner and your kids. Right. And the cultural and social pressures around this are just one part of the equation. In the case of these two families, they had to lay out and untangle their individual expectations and fears, too. Mm. So going into this, that's what you were hoping for from it. What were you afraid of? Oh, that's a good question. We wrote all those things down. This was a suggestion from our realtor. He was like, before you guys start on this process, write down all your fears, fold them up on pieces of paper, put them in a bowl, and just like pull them out one by one and talk about it. And so that's what we did. What else do y'all remember about the bowl conversation? Well, we all cried. (laughs) I remember that (laughs) as we were reading these responses. One of my responses was they would regret having bought a house with us like a year in or two years in. And I just thought about how bad that would feel. (laughs) I mean, I think like fundamentally it was about rejection, right? Like, wow, they're going to live with me and they're going to figure out what I'm really like. And they're going to be like, wow, wish we had done a hard pass like Mm. six months ago kind of thing. Similar to any relationship where something's going to change, you, I think, worry about, like, will I lose this friend, you know, or will things not be as fun or will they be way different? And, mm-hmm. you know, that that was, I guess, one of my fears. We talked a lot about, like, what happens if somebody really goes off the rails? S- several of us have had mental illness in the family and had family members, like, suddenly, you know, go through a mental health crisis and change. God forbid, what if one of us gets divorced or what if... I remember the mental health one being one that we all cried about. Um, Yeah. What do y'all remember about move-in day and the sort of weeks and months following that? Bethany was very pregnant. Oh my gosh. I was seven months pregnant. But I do remember during that time, we would all take family walks oh, yeah. late at night. And I would like be, you know, nothing fit. So I looked ridiculous. And Luke and Deborah walk really fast. And so they were like, <laughs> just really like 
walking very, very slowly. We all walked at my pace so that we could talk. We did it every night. I remember that being a really fun time. Like we all had something that we were anticipating kind of together, mm-hmm. getting the nursery ready and talking through like, oh, when is, you know, Bethany's mom coming? When is TJ's mom coming? When they go to the hospital, like, what are we going to do? Just being a, a really like fun period when we all were kind of looking forward to Mary Haley's arrival and like waiting with bated breath. (laughs) (laughs) How did you both decide the role that you wanted Luke and Deborah to play in your children's lives? Oh, what a really sweet question. I mean, I well, Luke and Deborah are the godparents to our children. Mm. That felt like a really obvious one. We want our children to experience like Luke and Deborah and the kindness and the love that they bring to our family. I mean, we're a family. Yeah, it's interesting living with kids because they have never known a day apart from us. <laughs> and so it's just normal <laughs> that they live with Uncle Luke and Deborah. And, you know, Mary Haley at first called us, I was Dada and Luke was douche. (laughs) (laughs) Not sure how I ended up with that one. That's tough. (laughs) Uh, But we always joked, you know, that Mary Haley had a daddy and a dada. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I mean, it's just like, we're just part of their normal life. And they've never asked, like, why do you live here? (laughs) What were the discussions about parenting in this shared environment like? I mean, I think we're all just like on the same page that Bethany and I were going to kind of parent our children how like we thought was right and Deborah loves like a very neat space so we try we have like a place in the corner I where, also like well, a also, neat space Bethany loves a very neat space and I think it's really hard to do this if you don't have some kind of shared value system with mm-hmm. another couple or I think you need at least some kind of shared faith system or shared non-faith system to to do mm-hmm. that I mean, I think it's helpful for people to know, like, hey, this is a strategy we're using when this happens. Mm -hmm. We, like, decided early on, like, you know, TJ and I will discipline our kids. And, like, Luke and Deborah, like, are their aunt and uncle, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, they, like, uphold the rules. Like, they don't encourage the kids to break the rules, right? Mm -hmm. But TJ and I, like, provide the, like, discipline or consequences. I think that has also helped just, like, that boundary. I wanted to ask also Luke and Deborah, how did you feel about committing not to live just with another couple, but with someone else's kids? I think a lot of us who play the sort of answer uncle role to our friends' kids, at least myself, I know, like I dip in and I dip out. You know, I show up, I show them a movie, I pump them full of sugar and I send them on their way to their parents. But you signed on to be there for all of it, all the time. TJ and Bethany were upfront that they were planning on having kids like from our very first conversation about this. So we always knew going in, you know, that this was what we were signing up for. But it it is humbling that like we actually do still have the option of dipping out. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not mm-hmm. quite to the same degree. Uh, you know, you can still hear the screaming uh, from the bedroom, but we can actually like step away and have some privacy or let TJ and Bethany deal with whatever is happening I think we thought it would be a great adventure. And on the one hand, we did know what we were getting ourselves into. We'd been around kids enough. But I I don't think we had like an idealized or romanticized view of what it would be like to live with kids. We were not planning to have kids. We knew that. But I think we felt like this would be a good way to participate like in the life of kids. Yeah. 
And our kids love them. Yes. <laughs> like we yeah. we love their kids. We are crazy about they're, them. They're very sweet. Yeah. I think that has been like one of the great joys of living together is getting to parent with a community that I think we wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. I think a lot of people feel isolated in their house with their kids. Yeah. And on the one hand, it is hard parenting in front of an audience, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and on the other, I'm so glad that we're like doing it together. And so that has made a big difference. We have a two to one adult to child ratio in the house. And I think a lot of people would hear that and be pretty envious because it does <laughs> it provide more adults to not just in terms of safety and keeping an eye on things, but just kids are attention sponges, right? And uh, mm-hmm. and it's nice to have more people in the house who can help, you know, kind of nurture them. And it's also really fun to hear the kids starting to use, you know, crazy words that I use or that Deborah <laughs> uses. And it's a privilege to get to be playing a role in like raising children without actually having had them. Do you eat together every night? We do. Whoever is here eats together. And the kids too. Yep. Okay. Yep. What are some of the rituals and rhythms that you've established in your house kind of week to week? Initially, we did a weekly house meeting and we still do house meetings, not quite weekly. And I think part of that is just like, we don't have the need for them as frequently as we did at first. We got this idea from another group house in DC. They said that they do a meeting every week and they ask, first of all, what's working and what's not working. Everyone goes around and has to respond to both questions. Like just the little things that really can grate on you or things that might be upsetting to you that might just fester for a long time. And so I think that's been a good practice for us, just sort of getting things out in the open. You know, it it provides a forum for that. So it could be something very small, like uh, the dishwasher isn't getting emptied until like noon and that's not working for me. Or it could be something very large, like hey, I think I'm going to quit my job and go to nursing school. Like, what do you guys think? Um, you know, it could... That sounds <laughs> those, like a real example. Well, yeah. <laughs> there were plenty of... There, there have been plenty of not workings that were just related to life, not necessarily. That's true. Things will come out that are related, not related to the house or that are related to that person's spouse. <laughs> that happens. At the weekly house meeting, we also talk through like weekly logistics, who's cooking, what days are they going to cook? Are we having anyone over... Is there a night when somebody's going to be out of the house and, you know, TJ and Bethany need help with childcare or something like that? What are some conflict management strategies in your house? Do you have specific ways that you go about it? Having like a structure for regular communication is really helpful because you don't feel this pressure to bring something up in the moment when you may or may not be ready to talk about it. Like, oh, Mm -hmm. I know we're having like a meeting. And so I can just bring it up there. Many of the lessons from marriage also apply. Things like you can't hold someone accountable to it if you didn't say it out loud. You also have to say what's working, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and that is something I think that I also have taken from TJ and Bethany is you say what you're grateful for, right? Like say what is working, say what I really appreciated it when you did this. Hey, we got uh, we got an espresso maker. That's really working for me. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, that question, what's working, what's not working, is a really hard question to answer, in part because you don't want to hurt people's feelings. And, you know, it just really forces you to talk about things that you wouldn't talk about otherwise. So I think that has forced me to be a better communicator. I 
have learned a lot from watching TJ and Bethany's marriage and just the way that they communicate. And so I, I think that's an added benefit of living with people is that you see their life so close up and personal and you see the way that, that they resolve conflict and the way that they parent their kids and all those things. And so I feel like I've learned a lot and I think I'm a better communicator because I've lived with TJ and Bethany. Yeah, I would second that. Living in community challenges you to just be emotionally intelligent, right? Is this like a me problem or is, is this actually somebody said something that was hurtful or they were just like not thinking about it or, but how am I feeling and why? And is it something that I need other people to help me deal with? Or is it something that I can, you know, process on my own? Yeah. And I think it also living in community forces you to work out your own kind of marriage mm-hmm. in community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's this uh, infamous night where we all sat down to dinner. We sat down and I said, you know what? Luke and I are, fi- are fighting and we need some time. And so we're going to go like work this out. We'll be back in 15 minutes. And Bethany said, TJ and I are fighting too. <laughs> and I think I think that TJ and Luke were both like, we're fighting. <laughs> oh no. Well, that, maybe so that was the problem. So we both split up into separate areas of the house and we came back after 15 minutes and, and like finished dinner together. But I you know. have no recollection of that. <laughs> That's hilarious. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We love each other and that love actually like is based on a commitment, right? And that's, mm-hmm. I think that commitment predates a mortgage, but a mortgage is a useful, you know, symbol of that as well, right? Like we are all committed to this. Like we are financially uh, on the hook in in other ways as well. And so, yeah, out of that commitment comes a desire to like, well, let's, we need to make this work. Yeah. Let's, we want to make this work. And so how do we do that? in a way that's like best for everybody. I think what's kind of remarkable to me about the commitment is that friendship culture in the U.S. and maybe elsewhere today is very anti-commitment, I think. And not always in a bad way necessarily, but I think friendship is defined in some ways by its voluntary nature. Mm. Uh, You don't have those formal commitments that you have in marriage, that you have in nuclear family. And so there can become this sort of sense of, you know, I love you and you're my friend, but the highest truth is everybody needs to do what's best for themselves. And I think it is rarer that you would put an obligation onto your friend or accept an obligation from your friend. 
Yeah, definitely. I think I'm setting healthy boundaries. Like I need to do some self-care, like that kind of language. Mm -hmm. I think we have a kind of shared moral framework that's based on our faith. And at least to my reading, like at the heart of Christianity is like actually other-centered love, Mm -hmm. that I'm choosing what's best for you, not for me. (laughs) And so I, I think that informs our shared living and our commitment to one another as well. And there are benefits for me, but like I also, I wanna love and I wanna serve you and your kids and Deborah. And I think that really is like our starting place as a house. Yeah. Again, I, there has to be a shared vision outside of yourself or else why else would you be doing it? There's many days or, or weeks where you don't want to, you want to be somewhere else. You, I mean, this happens to me all the time just because of my personality. Like, oh, I want to go move to Florida because it's cold. You know, it's like, you know, I can't tell you how many times I say that in the winter, but without that shared vision of something bigger outside of you, it's not going to last more than a year or two. Cause like, there's going to be something else, you know, you're going to find a reason to escape. I think it's really easy to make community like a theoretical concept. What I've learned about community through living with others, including Luke and Deborah, is that community is like a real like granular thing in real life, right? Like it's the people you're with on a daily basis, how you interact with them, it's how intentional you are with them. And it, it doesn't actually come naturally. Building real community is like not an ideology. It's a practice. And that goes for our house, but that also goes with my other friendships. Like I want to have lifelong friendships outside of this house. And I have to spend time with those people or else we're not actually close. (laughs) Can you all still imagine any scenarios where one of you would want to move out or two of you would want to move out? I mean, I guess if somebody got a job, a once in a lifetime opportunity somewhere else, something that we have talked about is that as the kids get older, they are sharing a room right now. At some point, they'll need to not share a room together. And so would we buy a different house? Would we maybe need to go our separate ways? Like what? Initially, when we decided to do this together, we signed a three-year contract. And now we essentially, now we're past that three-year mark and we have a retreat every year in May where we talk about the future and sort of what the next year looks like and what our timeline is. And so I think we just have this opportunity to revisit that every year. Mm. There's kind of a running clock on a couple of our careers. And so, mm. I mean, we've we've talked about that openly. It's not like a elephant in the room or something. And how do you, how do you think you guys would approach it if somebody did want to move out? So this was one of the things that we made sure that we really ironed out before we actually bought the house together. We would have the house, you know, independently appraised. If there's one couple that wants to stay in the house, they would have an opportunity to actually buy the other couple out. If that's not possible or they didn't, you know, the other couple didn't want to, then we would either sell the house and just split the, I think right now our equity would just be 50-50. Well, we could also, you know, rent the house out and split the proceeds from the rent as well. So one of those options. Would you recommend your choice to other people? Absolutely. Yeah, I think they need to go through the process. (laughs) Yeah, I think so too. I think you really want to, you know, count the cost. You need to make sure you're doing it with the right people. I think as long as you know you can financially trust, I mean, trust them in general, but and trust them financially, like that's that's a big part of it. I think you really have to think about like, okay, can we 
you know, just sort of like the picking things up and the dishes and all that, you know, that's really a big part of living with people. Yeah, 90% of what goes on, right, is very day-to-day and very mundane. The big questions only come up like so often. When someone puts microphones in your house and asks them to you. Right. (laughs) You know, I married a strong introvert who would like to be in his man cave most of the time. Luke is not the only one bearing the burden of kind of my social needs, but there's like a whole house of people to share that. And there's always someone up for doing something, you know, or hanging out. And so- Mary Haley. um, Especially especially Mary Haley, (laughs) um, who's four. And so, yeah, that part of it, the kind of um, social environment is just such a benefit, a pro of living with other people. Becca, I agree with Deborah. Like, I do think you need different people to fill different roles in your life. Mm. And Joe, my partner, has actually expressed to me that he is grateful for my work friends like you. Because when I try to tell him stories from work, sometimes, like, he doesn't know all of the characters. He doesn't really understand, like, the media industry. And so he said, you know, I'm really glad that you have these people to talk about this with. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it, it reminds me of a concept called the all or nothing marriage, which comes from this psychologist, Eli Finkel. And he's kind of theorizing that people just expect even more from their marriages than they used to. Like way back when, you know, it was basically a financial arrangement, right? Right. And then we wanted love on top of that. And now we even want like Mm self-actualization on top of that and to become our best selves through this relationship. And it could be very isolating if that one person is your sort of be all end all. Yeah, you know, I grew up in a multi-generational house as a kid and my aunt and uncle would come over every weekend and Mm -hmm. there were lots of people meeting my emotional needs as a kid, not just my parents. So whenever I saw just two parents and a kid at a dinner table at my friends' houses, I was Mm. always interested in the sort of stark difference with my family that was sort of a chaotic buffet-style mess (laughs) of a dinner every weekend. It sounds fun. Um, (laughs) It was. But I realized it's just a totally different setup when one person or just two people are expected to fill in the gaps of what an extended family or an extended network of people can do. Mm -hmm. It is interesting to me that in mainstream American culture, the romantic partner is expected to be your everything. Yeah, like help raise your kids and hear all of your work stories that they don't understand and help you around the house. And they're your go-to person for every concert and movie and anything that you do. It's just a lot for one relationship to hold. It's a lot of weight to ask for from anybody. And actually, it's been shown that relying on a variety of people to meet different emotional needs can be better for people's well-being. To get back to your earlier question, you know, there's like just on our block on this side, there's like three or four shared, you know, living arrangements, intergenerational arrangements, whether it's family or otherwise. It's actually not that weird, you know. If I want to suss out a friend to see if they'd be down for this, like how should I broach the conversation? I think you want to make it a compliment. Like, I've been thinking about living in community and wanting to do that intentionally. And when I thought about that, you were someone that I thought, wow, you would be a great person to live in community with. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I think I would suggest that people like, you, you got to talk to your spouse first. This is what I'm thinking. What do you think about that? How do you think that would impact our relationship? What would be great about it? Not just what are you afraid of? <laughs> what have you all learned about each other along the way? When you live together, you learn who is coming down the stairs before you see them. You learn kind of their footfall. You learn that TJ lets out a l- large sigh every morning as he comes down the stairs, first thing. So you, you have that level of intimacy with people. I'll take the more depressing approach. Uh, <laughs> don't worry. Right on cue. Are you sure? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody in the house is shocked. Even when you change your living situation, you're still the same person, right? All of the same things that I struggled with, like living with Deborah, like, hey, whoa, they're still true. Like, I'm still me for better or for worse, like positives and negatives. Like, um, I, I think there's always that temptation, like TJ said, to escape, to like move somewhere else, to like enter a new situation and then I'll be a new person. Like, no, you're going to enter a new situation and you're going to be the same you that you always have been. And so is, <laughs> is that the right situation to move into or not? Yeah, I think I've just learned that Luke and Deborah are better people than I even thought. <laughs> I don't know, like... <laughs> I can appreciate them at a deeper level than I could before we lived together. And even though, like, yeah, I mean, we've had arguments or disagreements, and I still think they're some of the best, most generous people that I know. It, like, amplifies the good. I like the idea of, like, we got to, like, choose our family. I don't know. It's just brought a lot of joy. And Julie, there are signs that other models of living, other than single-family homes, are also becoming normalized in our culture. Yeah, because there's something about the nuclear family household that encourages people to turn inward away from the possibility of that broader community. Mm. But if you want to have those other layers of support in your life, then it takes some really intentional planning to resist the pull of that model of home life that is really held up as the building block of society. And maybe even a hint of rebellion. Just a hint, just a hint. That's all for this episode of How to Talk to People. This episode was produced by me, Becca Rashid, and hosted by Julie Beck. Editing by Jocelyn Frank. Fact check by Anna Alvarado. Engineering by Rob Smirciak. Special thanks to AC Valdez. The executive producer of audio is Claudina Bade. The managing editor of audio is Andrea Valdez. Andrea Valdez.